we're uh, now getting into the into the thick of it. We're now getting into the the dense forest of laws and details and ritual um, proscriptions. Um, we're this week Parsha Tetzave looking at the the uh, the 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 kind of regal uniform of the high priest. Lots of time spent detailing exactly what he looked like, what what his dress looked like. Uh, let's put a picture of it on screen just quickly. And I didn't um, I didn't find a a good one, but this is the one that came up when I was googling just just before class. The, so there's like, you just get a sense of just what this, <laughs> this is sort of turban. It's literally like a turban with an, uh, a tiara and an insignia on it. And there's a long robe. We're not seeing most of it here. But, um, but, but what we are seeing here are these uh, stones on his chest. And that, that's, the, that's called the choshen, the breastplate. Um, and we're going to be talking about that today, uh, or or at least one piece of it. I, I'm I, I'm interested in, even though I, I said last week, and I regretted as the words came out of my mouth that these these passages can seem a little bit boring, and you know because I you know I hate to say that or in, in any Torah study, but it's it's hard reading. Um, but I actually find this mode of study to be um and i think our our tradition has too there's lots of vivid uh, detailed um um work with the with these descriptions of the tabernacle and of the priestly rituals by the midrash and subsequent commentators who saw great meaning and symbolism in it and i think it's because they appear to us as a kind of code that requires deciphering this is like, why are we getting all these details? It must be that there's something about this structure that we're supposed to understand. It must be that it's conveying more than just details, but some, some message, okay? And I actually think reading the Torah in that way, it, it teaches us to, to, to read quietly and closely, and carefully and that's good that's decoding deciphering is i think one great mode of reading and of studying our torah and i say all of this because today um we are uh going to look at i said one item in the priestly um garments and it is the choshen or or or, or, or more precisely it is re- it is embedded within the choshen and that is the urim vatumim the Urim Vatumim, all right? So let me, um, we'll, we'll spend our time explaining what that, what that is. Um, and, uh, and I promise you a rather strange and at least so far for me, not an entirely satisfying journey. Okay, so let's, let's say a blessing and let's get started. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu v'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Thanking God for the uh the chance to 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 fiddle with codes and maybe unlock unlock secrets okay so um 
here is the source sheet we're going to be looking at today. Okay. Okay. And um, let's just uh, bring ourselves into what we're, it's, you know, we're not, we're not going to even read all the text that we have in front of us today, but, um, but, but the, this is just an excerpt from a long passage describing every little stitch of the, of the high priest's garments. And um, then you get to this really interesting object. It's both an interesting object and it's interestingly named, and that is the Choshen Mishpat. So um, this is, I'm going to translate it for now as the breastplate of judgment. The breastplate of judgment. Because Mishpat, the word Mishpat, um, is often translated as justice or judgment or law. But I must say, I often use the, the Choshen to suggest a different meaning to the word Mishpat that I actually like want us to bring back to our, our thinking about justice, which is that Mishpat also means a kind of an order, an orderly layout. So, so a well-ordered society or well-laid out, some scheme, some vision, some, some pattern. And the um, stones here are laid out in a pattern, in a scheme, in a, in a set of rows. And because of that, it, maybe that's why it's called Chosh Mishpat. But today, uh, I, it seems clear to me that the other connotation is also relevant, that it's the breastplate of judgment. And that'll be relevant to what we'll soon see, the Urim Vitumim. So I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I do want to just give you some sense of how those stones looked, because we're going to have to think about them today. Um, and that is this. Um, where do I want to start? It, there's some discussion of, of how you stitch them in with what yarn. It's square. And and here, are the, here okay, set in mounted stones in four rows of stones, Arbaturim. Um, that's the name. A lot of famous books take their names from some of these descriptions. So the Arbaturim is a famous book of law. The four, the four, the four rows or the four columns. The first row shall be a row of carnelian, chrysolite, and uh, and emerald. Um, the first row uh, shall be um, the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and an amethyst. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and a crystal. The fourth row, a beryl, a lapis lazuli, and a jasper. You could, you, you, I, these are strange names for stones, and some of them are just like the best guess for what the Hebrew is in there. Not so, so important for our purposes, except to note that they were, the idea is that the priest wore a breastplate of 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes. And each one had a different kind of, you know, tribal insignia. And so a, a tribal uh, a stone. Okay. So now here's, here's, that's interesting enough. I, I actually think maybe one of these years I taught a class just on the Hoshan Mishpat and the meaning of the word Mishpat and is justice associated with all of this. But here again, I want to translate it as judgment, particularly because the, the object we're about to look at, which is in itself a kind of, decoding object is the Urim Vitumim and the whole problem and the whole question and our whole work today will be an attempt to answer the question what were the Urim Vitumim what were the Urim Vitumim because I I I 
I want to I want to claim strongly at the outset that my sense is that nobody knows. And I'm going to present you with a bunch of different theories. And at certain points along the way, I'm going to pause for your consideration and your reflection and your interpretation. I'll do that soon. But I want to take a look at some of the classic theories. And, you know, there's something that all these interpretations are seeing in common. But I don't know. I I woke up this morning with a headache. I really did. I woke up this morning because I went to bed thinking about the Urim Vatumim. And I don't think that I, I, I decided I'm finally going to teach a class about it this year. I want to teach a class about it every single year, but I, I can't because I don't know what they are. I haven't ever figured it out. And that, and, and, and I, and I think, uh, well, first of all, I have to maybe teach and, and hear from you to, to figure out what they are. But actually, I have, I have a strong sense that, I, that, that, that none of us ever will. But let's try. Let's try. Okay. So here we go. We're, we're, so I just showed you the text of the, the breastplate of judgment. And there are all those stones. And then I'm just going to scroll down a little bit because it tells you how to attach it and how to fasten it. And there's rings of gold and cords of blue. And it, it's just like it's that kind of detail all the way through. But then there's a, a repeating at the end of what this thing is. It's a thing that Aaron... Uh, shall carry the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. Okay. When he comes into the holy, the holy of holies, the the sanctuary, um, for remembrance. Before the eternal at all times. For remembrance for the, for the eternal at all times. And then here, here we are. Okay. This is what I've been building up to. Here we arrive. Vinatata el et And inside the breastplate of judgment, you shall place the urim and tumim. And I want to just say that. That in itself is a decision of translation, and we might translate it as something like, and uh, put on the breastplate the Urim Vatumim. In other words, is it inside? Is it upon? Where Exactly where does it go or what's going on here? Um, we don't, I think we don't really know. Okay, so I just want to give you some some options, some possibility, oops, some possibilities here, because we're going to try and figure this out. But let's just run with the translation they gave us. Inside the breastplate of judgment, you shall place the Urim Vatumi. What are they? So that they are over Aaron's heart when he comes before the eternal. And thus Aaron shall carry Vanasa Aaron et Mishpat Bnei Israel Alibo. And thus Aaron shall carry the judgment for the Israelites over his heart before the eternal at all times. Okay. What? Seems like massive things were happening. Aaron was going to carry the judgment of all the, the tribes of the the children of Israel on his heart. In the Choshen Mishpat, the, the 12 jeweled breastplate, fine. The symbolism there I sort of get, although why it's judge, associated with judgment. But now the Urim Vatumim are the way that Aaron is going to carry the judgment of Israel on his heart. 
Um, someone is unmuted. I keep hearing a an un, uh, a little sound in the background. So check your check your mutes, please. Um, okay, what do you see here? This is not. I don't have good questions because this is a more of a like a, a try to like a sort of gaze and and wonder kind of uh, <laughs> a journey we're on. But the Urim Vatumim, I don't want just wild speculation, but I want, like, do you have, um, these are, these, I, I, I should just say, and, and then I'll uh, um, open it up for interpretations. These are famous. The Urim Vatumim are famous. And um, it, people, have, there have been wild speculations all, all throughout history on what these are. Um, famous enough that some of you may know, anyone go to Yale here? <laughs> is, is, some of you may know that, um, Yale's coat of arms it has on it, here, I'll share it. This is Yale's coat of arms. Urim Vatumim. Urim Vatumim. Okay? That's, but that's like, you know, it's one of the best universities there in the world. And the, what they thought to put on their coat of arms was um, Urim Vatumim, which they then translate into Latin as light and truth, lux et veritas. Okay, so we'll figure out whether we think that's a good translation or not. But like the Urim Batumim on Yale's coat of arms, like what? Okay, so what do you see here in the text? What do you think is going on here? And I see some, I see some of my ringers who are going to give us, and I know some juicy uh, materials. Let's start with Ariella. To me, what it immediately brought up was the Vihafta putting. On our heart. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, good. Right. There's something um, that's an interesting uh, comparison here because think about the idea that you wear something symbolic and it has, it's a sign of something. And the Vehafta, the prayer that we say, the Shema prayer that we say, the Vehafta part has in it that you wear it as a sign uh, upon your hand and between your eyes. And so that we take to refer to the the prayer boxes, the tefillin that we actually wear on our arms and between our eyes. And I was just reading the Malbim last night who says that, uh, who says that the, um, the tiara of the priest is kind of like tefillin. And that's, we're, we're, you know, we, we, there, we, we engage in similar practices ourselves. And the practice is, using an object and the words on an object in order to display something before God or in order to connect our psyche to something, right? So that it is in the best, deepest sense of the word, a kind of psychological um, move, right? Like in a symbolic communication. Okay, good. Um, But that's just, okay, but what what is it? So um, Richard uh, Snoopy Fogel here. That would be me, yes. Uh, Real quick, I've always assumed that the Orm and Thorm were two little stones that were secreted in a pouch inside the breastplate, and supposedly later on, leaders of Israel could take them out and ask God a yes or no question. Mm -hmm. But I do want to bring up one other side comment. Okay, I'm going to let you do that, but let me just, because you, you did what you... Um, I, I'm so grateful you usually do. You gave us some of the, the juicy pieces of information. So 
okay, we're starting theories. Maybe they are also stones and they're two stones maybe, and they're used to answer questions. So that's, okay, that's a first pass. The Urim Vatumi, yes, are often remembered as magic stones, so to speak, that you could, and, and, and that's why the class is called, and they are often referred to as oracle stones. But it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, but it's, there's something about them being two that leads to theories that, well, but they were oracles, but it's not like they would tell you anything. It's that they, they could say yes or no. Okay. All right. But Richard, please continue. Oh, now we can't hear you. Sorry. 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 My interruption caused okay. the mute. I um, um, it, it turns out I was researching this with a study partner and we wanted to find out what happened to the Urim and Thorum. And according to the uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, they were given to uh, Joseph Smith to help him translate the golden plates. Well, that's good. It's good <laughs> to know what finally happened to those, uh, yep. those bad boys. All right. <laughs> Thanks for that information. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Um, um, with that uh, new information in our, in our quill, uh, Noah, please. Yeah, I, I always thought they might be stones. They might be something else that just kept that divine light near to the heart of the high priest and something physical that kept the priest or the leaders grounded so that they could make these judgments and rulings knowing that they are answering to a higher power while still being grounded in this physical reality. Good. Okay, good. Good, good. Uh, So Noah is describing um, one of the features of these rocks, um, which is that they could illuminate and give some light. And Noah is is picking up on, and and it's there, it's like, this also becomes a a major touch point for traditional interpretations. Noah is picking up on the fact that Urim, now we have to start thinking about the words, right? Soon, and we will, as soon as we look at Rashi, we'll see, we have to think, what are Urim and what what are Tuming? Do we know? Not exactly. Not exactly. But Urim sounds like it could be related to light, or. So Urim, lights. So they were the lights and somethings. We'll, we'll talk about that more. But yeah, and therefore, they, they are, because they're designated by God, and they can refract and reflect light, they'll they'll sparkle and illuminate some divine message. And it is God's message, not like the stones have power, but they kind of are there to transmit some some divine message. Brother Payam, I was just thinking about you. I was just thinking about you this morning. I was like, I haven't seen Payam in too long. How you doing? Good. I had a question. Are sons Please. of Israel Nadav and Abihu? Sons of Israel Nadav and Abihu. Nadav and Abihu are um, Aaron's sons. Right. And they are being appointed this week as uh, priests, not high priests. Aaron's the high priest, and they're... They're the ones that will eventually die. Um, oh, this is before that. Sorry, I don't before that. Yeah. Okay, because I just saw, you know, because it's the duality, and he keeps it near his heart, and what eventually happens to them. To me, there's just some kind of connection between what happens to them and he keeping it in his heart. It's almost like a checkoff, like, uh-huh. you know, whatever. That's that. interesting. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. All right. Interesting. 
All right, we're not there yet, so we'll 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 hold on that. Um, okay, let let me um, I see start starting to see more and more hands come up. Let's let me start to give us to insert various theories along the way. Otherwise, we'll never get to them, and then we'll continue to take. Like I said, this is not. I'm I, what I can think. I think I have managed to figure out and and can do is take you down the path of the conversation what are these things and some of the classic answers um but i don't it's not like i have a whole a, a whole systematic analysis that leads to some grand conclusion so let me start giving you theories the first one i want to give is um given by our our, our greatest friend our, fa- our favorite commentator a go-to commentator rashi who brings the opinions of the talmud so these are in a sense the most authoritative um opinions and um in the tradition and um, we're going to see in them some um, of what we already spoke about, um, which is um, which is the 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 the, the light, the the the, um, the attempt to make sense of, of both of these words. So let's take a look at what Rashi says that they are. Okay, the Urimatumim. Um, this was, and he sort of takes that as one unit, the Urim Batumim, the, the whole, the, the whole thing was an inscription of Shem HaMiforash, Shem HaMiforash, which is a way of saying the, 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 the divine name, the, the, the proper name of God. Is that, is that Yud Ke Vav Ke? Or is it, um, some, some other explicit, like the 72 letter name of God that the mystics speak of? What was it? Some people say, oh, maybe Urim and Tumim are two names of God that were placed between, um, Rashi says, that are placed between the folds. Hifleachoshen. So it seems that the two, there, there's, there's pieces, right? There's the back piece and there's the front piece. And this, these, this is parchment now. This is parchment that's placed in there in the back of the breastplate, through through which um, the breastplate made its statements clear. Literally, um, illuminate, she'al yadohu me'ir, illuminated, that's from Urim, illuminated, and this being allusion to the Urim, and me'ir dvarav umitamem et dvarav, and its promise is true. Now, true is a funny, remember, Yale translated it this way too, light and truth. Now the word tam, mitam, mitamem from the root tamam, an allusion to tamim, that that's right. The word tamim means pure, true, innocent, virtuous, right, complete, whole. Noah is Noah uh, is described as um, as as tamim, sadik tamim hayabadorotav. He was a, a perfectly righteous pure and righteous, however you translate that, but some kind of pure and whole thing. So the Talmud says these Urim Vatuma are the illuminating and the verifying. Um, uh, uh, that, that's, what they, that's what they do, but the way it works, and I'm not sure why the Talmud makes this move. The way it works is they're not an object. They are some name of God that's slips uh, that's sort of slipped into the breastplate and then and then um the breastplate well I don't know <laughs> like I'm not sure exactly what it what ha- what happens we'll think about that more but the breastplate lights up 
is is was there a suggestion that it's being illuminated that wasn't exactly explicit but um this is one theory and i will just note that this theory is kind of like the beginning of what ends up continuing in jewish tradition this idea that the names of god have actual powers the most famous expression of of that notion is now the the name the moniker by which we refer to the founder of of Hasidut the Baal Shem Tov the master of the good name and there were he, he was the one but there were lots of like Baalei Shem Tov um or Baalei Shem masters of divine names who knew how to write divine names in such a way that it would safeguard or release um um divine properties of blessing or maybe illuminate the breastplate or tell you what you needed to know or some kind of okay all right so that's first first pass here okay is that rashi and the talmud and um many voices in the tradition say that the urim batumim were a, a kind of code almost like you know you, you we have these machines now where you like put the card in and the computer kind of plays based on like the code that's on the card or think of a qr code right and it's like reads it and suddenly it's like like whatever it does i, I don't i don't know but um but that's that's one way we're, we're we're beginning to speculate all right let's let's hear now uh what some some folks are thinking matt silverstein i have no answers i have some other problems or maybe, which is, we've got this long description. Does it relate to anything later? Like, does the priest later have this thing? Is that you know? I why are we getting this as a food laws? I can I can use property laws. I can use description of this. Well, where, where do I go? Matt. Anyway, that's. I love learning with you, Matt. Matt asks the exactly the right the right questions. Uh, that's 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 exactly the right question. What, am I? Um, what what's going on here? We're just discussing these in in isolation. What what do they do? What do, you, and do we have any record of them doing anything? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And it's exactly the right question because yes, we do. And that's the reason that that we are even talking about them as objects of, of divination or prediction is because it seems like that's what they're doing later. But when I say it seems like, I mean, it's not clear at all. Let me give you the first example. Um, The first examples in, uh, in the Torah itself, although we'll soon look at an example and even more illuminating example in the book of Samuel, where they seem to be used again. Um, the problem is they're not, we don't, we don't always get the full formulation in Urim Vatumim. So, uh, so here, here's one of the objects or one of the words in the book of Numbers, and it comes in the scene where Moses is appointing Joshua by divine mandate, appointing Joshua to be his successor, okay? And uh, suddenly uh, there's mention of the, um, of the Urim. Okay, so I'm, I'm going back a source uh, because Matt actually asked the question so, so, so right that I probably should have done this earlier. <laughs> I should have done this before, but this is, this is the first instance of the Urim Vatumim use. So 
uh, Moses spoke to the Eternal and said, let the Eternal source of the breath of all flesh appoint someone over the community who shall go out before them and come in before them and who shall take them out and bring them in. So the congregation of the Eternal not be like sheep that have no shepherd. Okay, beautiful introduction to the idea of who will lead next, what Joshua will be. And the Eternal answered Moses, single out Joshua, son of Nun, a man with spirit in him and lay your hand upon him and have him stand before Eleazar and the priest and the whole community. Okay, Eleazar is the, is, is the, is the high priest now. Aaron has, has died. And commission him in their sight and invest him with some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community may obey. But he shall present himself to Eleazar the priest, who shall on his behalf seek the judgment of the Urim. The judgment of the Urim. Bemishpat ha-urim. There it is in the Hebrew. Um, seek the judgment of the Urim before the eternal. By st- now, I don't, this is not even so clear how to translate this. By such instruction shall they go out, and by such instruction shall they come in. Alpiv yetsu v'alpiv yevo. And it's not clear, is it by the instruction of, or the mouth of God, the priest, the Urim v'tumim? Not clear. And it's not the Urim v'tumim, it's just the Urim, but we do have that word judgment. And he and all the Israelite militia and the whole community. So it kind of sounds like, I'm just going to give my version of it, but I'd love to hear yours. It kind of sounds like, okay, um, when I go and Aaron goes, you will be in the new Moses and Eleazar will be in the new high priest. And what will happen is in times of decision-making, in times of battle, in times of when you need to know what to do, you'll come to Eleazar and you'll ask your questions and the, and um, you consult the Urim. Maybe you'll put the slip in, or maybe you'll just, you know, hello, Urim, I don't know. And then it'll tell it'll tell you, maybe, if we were talking about the lights, right? Or no, maybe we're understanding all of this wrong, and somehow, I don't know. You know, um, speaking of which, con- con- maybe we're, like, thinking all of this, about all of this wrong. So, first of all, we have an answer to Matt's question. We'll see it again and again that there is a consulting of the Urim. There's a consulting of the Urim. What does that mean to consult the Urim? Um, And that it is associated with the priests and it does give some kind, render some kind of judgment. Um, But we don't know exactly how it's happening. Um, I want to give you um, another, uh, another classic answer I would give you Rashi's answer, and I just—I don't even think we're going to get through all of the ones that I found. But I want to give you another classic answer that is Maimonides' answer, although Maimonides never says it. <laughs> Maimonides never says it, but everybody assumes Maimonides believes it. It's like if you can if you can trust me on that one. I'm going to show you um um uh, a a commentary by the Haktav VeHakabalah, great commentary by. Um, Rabbi Mecklenburg, Yaakov something Mecklenburg of uh, 19th century Germany. And he's kind of working through this problem too. And he he describes what is the common assumption that the Rambam, Maimonides, held, which is different from Rashi's 
Remember, Rashi has these slips of paper, the Baal Shem Tov kind of style slips of paper. This is, this is an explanation of another theory of what these things were. And it turns out what these things were, were not, according to the Rambam, according to other interpreters, what they were was not, were not separate things at all. Okay. In fact, well, just let's take a listen. Um, this is Haktave Hakabalah. And he says, I was greatly puzzled over this because I didn't find anything about it in the writings of Maimonides. Maimonides writes about all the garments on the, on the high, on the high priest's clothing, uh, uh, in, in the high priest's outfit, but he never talks about the Urim Batumim. In the ninth chapter of his Laws of the Vessels in the Sanctuary, he describes all the details of the breastplate and the priestly robe, and he never mentions the Urim Batumim. But how could he leave out something explicitly mentioned in the Torah? That's just a, a question on the Rambam. Well, what, what, he didn't think it was worth mentioning? The Torah mentions it. Therefore, it seems to me that he did, he did not understand the Urim Vitumim to be holy names of God, as the other commentators have claimed. Rather, the 12 stones that were inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes, they themselves are being referred to by the Torah as the Urim Vitumim, because they would light up and verify matters of inquiry by signaling letters. Okay, so... In some ways, it's not that different. It's like, this is supposed to be like the great rationalist is like, no, no, no. They weren't, you know, uh, divine names. It was just the stones themselves would illuminate. It still seems like magic to me. But what is important about the Maimonides reading here is that it actually, it actually makes some sense of, well, both of these commentators, Rashi and um, at least this version of Maimonides, are tr- just trying to make sense of the verses themselves. Because if we just go back to the original, Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel of the, on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. And then on the breastplate of judgment, you shall place the Urim Vatumim, which Maimonides just means like it's a repetition of you place those stones, but they're illuminating stones. And they're always over Aaron's heart. And they light up. And that's why they're called Urim. And that would make sense of the, of the, of the uh, verses in, in, in numbers, but they're really just words for stones. Okay. That's Maimonides opinion. And I, I, I offer it because I'm not sure if it helps us that much, but it shows you that we really don't, Maimonides is like, what are we doing coming up with some new fangled thing here? There's just the stones themselves. That's the Urim Tumim. Whereas Rashi's carrying on the tradition of the Talmud and most other interpreters that know but that's less intuitive that there were special divine names. Okay, so let me pause again and turn again to our our, uh, our murderers row here, our line of uh, as they as they call the batting the batting order, our line of interpreters. So let's uh, let's turn to Jen. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that this didn't get like sort of sorted through before. But like when you look at that passage, there's many 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 verses that say you shall do this, you shall do that, you shall do that. But once we get to this particular thing it turns back to Aaron will do, Aaron will wear. It gets Mm -hmm. personal at -hmm. that point. Um, And, you know, like Payam was making me think about like Aaron as a human being being involved in this, who has put these like, they put these like objective gems to like represent all the people. And then they come back and they talk about Aaron doing a thing, which makes me think that Aaron's personal relationships are somehow involved in this. Or something about involved in your own personal relationship to the Israelites. So you have that objective on the outside and that personal on the inside. 
uh, which is kind of a good balance and a good parallel. I have no idea how that ends up in like divination, like, <laughs> like no idea. Um, but it really does seem to me like the verse is indicating something personal at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially right. I, I like that sensitivity, um, Jen, and, and especially that language Ali Bo on his heart, on his heart. He's going to carry it on his heart, which does seem as, you know, someone said earlier, kind of symbolic and personal you're adding. It's, that's right. It's like he's carrying it and you will go. It's like, let's just step back here for a second. And, and and think about like I was gonna say you will go to the priest. That that's the that's that's part of the idea here is and Jen's pointing out you, you there's all this finery and we're talking about all these things and the twelve stones are but in the end the priest carries them and you go and you and so will Joshua have to go to the high priest and consult the Urim Vatumim. Now, so there's something about the high priest and the high priest who bears them. Now, let's just. Let's just like insert an, an important parenthetical here, which is that there's a huge problem with the Urimpatumim and our whole conversation and any kind of magic conversation in Jewish uh, tradition, which is that it sounds a lot like uh, other other forms of, of divination that we would refer to as uh, avodazara, as, as idolatry. Right? It's like divination the Torah says not to practice divination, like, you know, throwing bones and seeing where they land and, you know, uh, fortune telling in these sorts of ways. But the, wait a minute, this is fortune telling, isn't it? And is this allowed? This is like a glaring problem. Like, we're trying to figure out what the Urim Batumim are, but we're also like, Ooh, that's not, that's weird. So, so with all that, I, I want to insert that parenthetical because that's a problem with the Urim Batumim, it's, it's also in a sense a problem with the high priest. <laughs> like the, the whole system of sacrifices, it's all a little strange. And so we are to understand that this, and Noah was alluding to this earlier, this is really God talking. And the priest is a bearer of God's message. And the priest doesn't even do it himself. He does it through these stones, which is like, that's a little weird. But again, it's really God talking. And it's God's medium for communicating with you and the priest will will bear that upon his uh, upon his breast but okay but you still can sort of see the like there's something anxious here uh, about this theologically for us and at the same time as the Kabbalah said just said it's in the torah <laughs> it's in the torah there's nothing we can do about that and it's in the torah and it's in the torah twice so there's all kinds of like what's going on here what's going on here um I let's see. Do we have, do we have time for this? I'll, I'll give you one more example from the from the medieval commentators. One more example, and, and this should give you a sense of how uncomfortable um, uh, this is. Um, and again, <laughs> I mean, to tell you, my research for this class is like uh, dizzying. But again, I'm quoting someone not directly, but through someone else who's quoting him because it's clearer when. Uh, the someone else says it. So we're going to take a look at the commentary of the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra is sort of second to Rashi as the most classic commentator. And his piece on this is very cool. And he says, I've got a, as usual, it's, he says like, I've got a secret and I really can't tell you the whole thing. I really can't. I can't. But I'll tell you just a little bit. <laughs> he's, su he's such a, he's such a, he's such a, a, a tease. <laughs> but, um, 
but the Ibn Ezra is quoted by Nachmanides. Nachmanides, the Ramban. I've said a lot of names here, so if if they're not so familiar to you, I'm just talking about various figures in the in the in the medieval world of, of Jewish medieval scholarship. But um, take a look here. This is one medieval scholar quoting an earlier one um, at what at the at what the Ibn Ezra said. These were let's see here Urim Batumim. Okay, you shall place the place in the breastplate of the judgment that Urim Batumim. Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra tried to give wisdom in the matter of the Urim Batumim by saying that they were made by a craftsman from gold and silver, and then he elaborates and claims that they were like the objects which the astrologers make in order to know the thoughts of the one who comes to ask them about the future. Velo amar klum. But what he said is worthless. Rather, the Urim Batumim are as Rashi has written. <laughs> you got to love these moments. Fighting words. Fighting words. Velo amar klum. What he, it's literally, and he didn't, the Ibn Ezra said this, and literally it's, and he didn't say anything. Below Amar Klum, that's worthless. Nonsense. Nonsense. I want to just plug uh, best book ever. Um, uh, we are about to release. I'm late in putting it together, as um, Vera knows, but we're about to release our second episode of this season. And we released one, Vera, if you want to uh, put it in the chat, on sibling rivalry. We're about to next week release one on astrology. So there's a little plug for um but here but the ibn ezra is the reason that we're doing this because the ibn ezra was an astrologer and so can you believe this he's saying that the urim vatumim was an i don't even know what this is but it's called an astrolabe you know what an astrolabe is it's like a it's a mech it's a, some kind of measurement tool that all right i'm going to call on leon next because she seems to know what it what it is but um but this you can just see in the um in the language here the 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 debate that the Rashi says one thing and then Maimonides says that's doesn't really say it, but we think he said, no, 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 that's, you can't come up with a new paper writing technique. It's the stones themselves. And then the Ibn Ezra says, no, 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 there was some astrological device in there. <laughs> and Nachmanides comes along and says, that's heresy. I don't know. He didn't say heresy, but he, you can tell that he's, that he wants to. Right. So that's where we're at. That's where we're at. All right. Leah, what do you think? Um, I want to say two things. One thing is that Maimonides was virulently, virulently anti-astrology. Okay, that's one thing. The other thing I want to say is I think we're caught in a model of push phone, touch phone, and electric lights. Gems, I don't think on the breastplate were thick. I think they were thin and cut in a way so that Aaron, the priest, or Eliezer, who's ever wearing the breastplate, moves his trunk in the direction of sunlight mm-hmm. and different variations of light in the way that perhaps stained glass was originally developed. And I think in that way, they are not, they're not the, the, the messengers of God. They're the receivers of God's message. And that that was interpreted oh i love this interpretation this is so incredible this is such i to me this is so compelling what leah's given us is that imagine that that these stones were prisms prisms which would reflect different light. maybe they even had names scratched into them as the as the rambam imagines and so they would when they reflected light maybe they would even project 
um, uh, letters, maybe. But who knows? The idea is it's so compelling. What, what Leah gives us is not just compelling because it's kind of makes sense. Like, oh, right, that's the way you would use stones to project light to give a message. But also, it, it kind of, there's something about it that works theologically, almost works a little better. That is to say, uh, these stones are going, they're objects, but they're going to project light. Light's from God. Light. And we're just going to let the light come through and see what God says. Now, is this, divination idolatrous practice i don't know like it doesn't make us uncomfortable and you know but this one's sanctioned by the torah and you can see the you can see the the beauty of it as i really really love that description leah that there's like maybe there was a, you, you come to the priest you ask your question the priest uses these stones to create and then you see what does god say on the ceiling or whatever it is I, that's you know, in this mysterious search, that's better. That's a better a guess than than any one that I gave. Anyone that I gave. Okay. Um, uh, one more comment, and then one more text, and then we'll see where we're at. And I want to turn to Alexandra. Thank you. I love that image, Leah, of the uh, stained like the stained glass window. Um, I was wondering, since there is no real like physical description of the Urim and Tumim. Like maybe they weren't physical at all, and maybe maybe it's just like an like angelic or um, angel energy or something like that. Like we have, there is other areas in Judaism where like we do bring the angels to us and surround us, like in the B'shem prayer in the Shema, where you surround yourself with the guardian angels and you put the light of God over your head. And so how much more so would the priest like bring the angels or in some sort of angelic or divine energy in and like consciously put it here and put it here like an embodied, energetic, kinesthetic, spiritual practice that like this energy, these angels are here and we we physically can bring non-physical energy to us and Mm. let it guide us. You know, there's a couple of things um, that uh, your description uh, is kind of picking up on um, that that leads the tradition in in various ways. In some ways, I think your comments are, though obviously, you know, angels are quite different than anything we've seen before. But in, in some ways, they're similar to Rashi's comments because they're like, it, it, I think that's what the Talmud is also trying to do: is say it's like. Um, though they, in the end they come to like a, a written name, which is physical in one way. I think what they're trying to express is that it, no, but it's a spiritual property an emanation and that God's name, it, the various names of God in Kabbalistic literature often are kind of like angels or emissaries or expressions of God. And, and I, the other thing I want to say about your wondering here are these, beings or angels or entities or energies is that a lot of the commentators note that the the appearance is not just uh, the first appearance of the of the urim and tumim it's not um urim and tumim it's the urim and literally actually it repeats it again the tumim so look at this ha urim the ha tumim the lights and the um, perfections. And that 
almost sounds like the lights and the perfections, the the be the, the divine be the spirits, right? Like I, there's something in there, yeah, something really interesting to wonder about there. All right, um, let me just uh, take us on one last turn here, and this one's this one's a doozy, okay? Because and Matt's gonna like this because it's 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 heretical in in one way, which is that um uh and I, oh and speaking of heresy, I got a lot of these sources and I want to credit it, although he doesn't credit himself. This is kind of fascinating. I got a lot of this from um, a vaguely heretical um, but very good Torah website um, called thetorah.com, and this. Is amazing. It's so it's a it's a it's a, a collection of articles that Matt would love that um, analyzes the Torah through the mostly through the lens of critical biblical scholarship, and um, this article is by a guy named Yol, who is apparently a Satmar Chassid, and is not giving his full name, but is like a Satmar Chassid who is interested in like biblical criticism. He's like and I can't reveal who he he really is. It's just kind of a wild. I grew up with the with this with the Satmars. And uh, so kind of a wild thought. It's like one of my landsmen here. But anyway, uh, he kind of takes us through this and um, he presents the last opinion and he presents it as a kind of, you know, potentially heretical or critical scholarly opinion. Um, and that is because it, it, it borrows from the Septuagint. Okay. Um, so the Septuagint is simply put the Greek translation of the Torah, but the one that was thought to be commissioned by Ptolemy, King Ptolemy in the third century of the, before the common era. Okay. So, and it was pretty considered to be pretty authoritative, the first major translation of the, of the Torah. So uh, take a look here. Um, Here's what, Oh, uh, sorry. I have the wrong uh, verse called up. Okay. Here's the critical verse. Okay. This is like we have 10 minutes left and we're going to try and do one last important move. And here's a um, a critical verse about the Urim Vatumim. We saw one in the book of Numbers. Remember Matt asked earlier, well, where is it? Is it ever used? And the verse is like this. They've gone to battle, um, but the, God is angry because someone has, has um, God never likes it when you go to war and then profit off of the war. Right. So they've gone to battle. Saul has gone to battle and God is upset because someone has profited off the war. And it's John, it's, it's Jonathan, it's Jonathan, his son, who couldn't help himself and took some honey that he found. He's just hungry, but God doesn't like that. And Saul is outraged and flying off the handle and doing what sometimes reckless kings do in the Bible, which is to say, I'll kill my own son if he did it, you know, and that's what he threatens to do. But in to do that, he seems to once again, to figure out who did it, he seems to consult well, not the Urim Vatumim, and not the Urim, but maybe the Tumim. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's take a look here. There's a little, uh, there's a little, there's a little clue in here, and uh, this is the book of Samuel. For as the Eternal lives, who brought victory to Israel, even if it was through my son Jonathan, he shall be put to death. The person who is caught uh, having taken something, not one soldier answered him. And he said to all the Israelites, you stand on one side and my son Jonathan and I shall stand on the other. It's all like a setup for him to like end up cursing and killing his own son, which another figure in Tanakh does. Um, eventually he gets out of it. But the troops say to Saul, do as you please, because they didn't take it. And then Saul then said to the eternal, the God of Israel, show tamim. 
Shotamim. And Yonatan and Saul were indicated by Lot, and the troops were cleared. So wait, what were the Tamim? It's not even Tumim, by the way. It's not, This is how vague this conversation is. It's not Tumim, but Tamim. But it sounds kind of like it, it's written the same way. And then you notice this little note here, this little note. And this note, if you clicked in it, uh, brings you to this note. Meaning of Hebrew uncertain. Septuagint reads, okay, so we just saw, Saul said to the eternal of the God of Israel, Shotamim, and it's sort of abrupt. What does that even mean? The Septuagint, the translation, the Greek translation of the Torah reads, why have you not responded to your servant today? If this iniquity was due to my son, Jonathan, or to me, O Lord, God of Israel, show Urim. And if you say it was due to your people, Israel, show Tumim. In other words, this is the Greek translation inserts an extra piece. And the truth is the, ver- the verse in, the, in, the, in, in our uh, uh, Tanakh doesn't make a lot of sense. It makes more sense here. And so the idea is maybe the Septuagint is telling us what the way the Urim and Tumim worked which is, and this gets back to what Richard said at the beginning, is that it could answer yes or no questions or this one or that one questions, okay? If it's us, throw Urim, and if it's us, throw Tumim, it's a little bit like dice, right? A little bit like dice. So that's the Septuagint. Now, I don't know, what do we make of the Septuagint? Now, why is this heretical? Well, Septuagint is sort of a funny source for explaining the Torah, and especially because the Septuagint, in being different from the Torah, seems to indicate, this is not the Torah, but later books of the Bible, seems to indicate that we have the wrong version, and that's like, heresy. But but um, but also, um, it just makes so much more sense here. It's the first description we've had. Urim one way, Tumim to, to, to the, the other. And none of the commentators have assumed that, but that this reading of the Septuagint might suggest that, and I think that's this article goes like that in the in the Torah.com. Okay, for your consideration, but I want to say one last thing, one last thing, and that is this. I don't really feel uncomfortable talking about the Septuagint. You know, um, Matt, Matt and I are always kind of like uh, uh, happily sparring because like I'm a traditionalist and I don't really usually go down the line of, of yeah, critical scholarship, piecing, piecing out what is the real text that we have. I don't feel uncomfortable, though, with the Septuagint because the Septuagint by legend, by both Greek and Jewish legend, was commissioned by Ptolemy um, to be written by 72 rabbis, 72 Jewish scholars. Now, let me give you the version of that story. There's, it's, there's a letter, a Greek letter that accounts this, accounts that, that gives this account. And there's also a passage in the Talmud. Let me give you the passage in the Talmud. Just as one last, what is the Septuagint and why would be it be inserting new information into the Torah. This is our account in the Talmud, and we'll we'll close with this. The Gemara continues, and this was due to the incident of King Ptolemy, as it is taught in Abraita. There was an incident involving King Ptolemy of Egypt, who assembled 72 elders from the sages of Israel and put them into 72 separate rooms. Okay, that's the, this is the Jewish version. And did not reveal to them for what purpose he had assembled them so that they would not coordinate their responses. He entered and approached each and every one and said to them, write for me a translation of the Torah of Moses, your teacher. 
The Holy One, blessed be he, I didn't retranslate this, sorry, um, placed wisdom in the heart of each and every one, and they all agreed to one common understanding. Not only did they all translate the text correctly, they all introduced the same changes into the translated text. Okay. And then the Talmud goes on and gives a bunch of lists of where they, they all, when they translated it into Greek, they all made the same changes. And all of the examples are things that if you, like when God says, let us make the human being, who's the us? They change that. When anytime you would get confused and think there was heresy in the Torah, they changed it to make it seem clearer. Okay, so that's, a, that's just the theory that we have about the, the Septuagint. But if that's true, let's take both the like, scholarly and the rabbinic perspectives and put them together. I don't know how many of you were convinced by that kind of dice rolling image, the yes or no, or just convinced that the Septuagint has the right version of the text. But if that's true, then the strangest thing of all would be that the rabbis of old had the original text and felt that the original text would be too problematic. And so they actually gave the explanation of how this worked so that, um, in a sense, the secret would be um, more available in translation than it would be in the original. Now, I don't know what that means. Does it mean they they misled? Or does it mean they made sense of, though this wasn't the, really the way it worked? Or does it mean that they actually revealed the secret to in, when they when they did the translation? I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what to do with that. And we are out of time, but that's, that's, um, that is, that's one of the prevailing theories now of the Urim Vatumim is that this verse tells you that they would cast lots, um, one way or another and Urim this way, Tumim that way. And maybe they were stones that like were black and white. Some people, like it really does start to, to sound like dice. We've seen a lot of different, um, theories here. Um, along the way, but I really do think um, nobody's got it. I don't. I don't know about you. I, you know, I, I wish I had more time to ask, but it really does feel to me like I don't, I'm not. I'm not totally convinced by any of this, and I don't think I've gotten to the bottom of it. But hey, maybe next year, right? <laughs> I'll see you all next week. Have a great Shabbos. Thanks, great class. See you. See you at class tonight. Oh yes, I'm, gonna, I'm giving a class tonight. Uh, if you're interested, uh, it's called uh, Living in Jewish Time, and it's a class on basic Jewish practices, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, lifely Jewish practices. So tonight at uh, 6 o'clock, also on Zoom in our calendar. Thanks for...